to the podcast for North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children like me and youth and adults at ndpc.org. You can also follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come join us in person. Okay, that's it. On to this week's scripture and sermon. I don't know if you'll be able to stretch your imagination like this, but I want to take you back to Jerusalem in the first century of the Common Era. You see, the land then was very diverse, ethnically, religiously, and politically. People of different backgrounds interacted with one another frequently across lines for commerce and trade and labor. But groups could be very insular when it came to family life and religious life. Can you imagine? To stretch your mind even more, some groups of people had mandates from their cultures that certain types of interactions between people were forbidden. They could make you ritually impure or unclean or even sick. Can you imagine having mandates that told you not to touch each other or interact? Oh, you could? (laughs) Yeah, me too. Well, in large cities, like in the city of Jerusalem, there was an area outside of the holiest sanctuary, and it was called the Court of the Gentiles. Here, people who were interested in being spiritually fed and morally informed by the God of the Hebrew people, but who were not ethnically Jewish, those who might not be up to date on their ritual purity, or hadn't had the you know, proper surgical alteration to become Jewish, These people could still draw near to the temple. They could pray, they could make sacrifices, they could study the scriptures with a real live rabbi, and they could participate in most of the life of the Jewish Jewish community, just as long as they didn't ever try to sit down and eat with them or contaminate their mikvahs. And then this guy came along and ruined all of that. Or at least somehow, that's how we tell the story sometimes. While we read the gospel and we hear about how Jesus was breaking religious law, we might mistakenly think that he was the first guy to introduce the idea or concepts of tolerance. We hear about plucking grain on the Sabbath, eating with tax collectors and sinners, healing people without getting the proper authorization. And we get the idea that no one had ever thought of mixing people up like this before. It's just not true. Actually, throughout history, any time in any place where there have been people crossing paths, there's been diversity. And in the midst of that diversity, there's always been fear, anxiety, opportunism, tolerance, power struggle, intermarriage, slavery, war, the whole gamut of human interaction. The difference between most historical tolerance for diversity And Jesus's disregard for societal norms is the difference between seeing an opportunity for profit versus being an advocate for allowing compassion to trump religious self-conceit. We have this benefit of combing through different accounts of Jesus's and the disciples' lives. We can read and compare several different writers with different perspectives. And in a lot of the circles that I run in, we stumble across a few nuggets that we agree to be pretty foundational to the whole Jesus plot. 
We sometimes condense Jesus's message into just a few little words. Love your neighbor. So when we read the book of Acts, we may think, what took Simon Peter so long to catch on? Even Paul catches on before Jesus's best friend that God might be doing something with this no partiality thing. There's so many dots that get connected in the book of Acts. Maybe instead of the Acts of the Apostles, we should call it the Ohs of the Apostles. The Peter and Cornelius story is fascinating. If you want a really fun time, read Acts 10 through Acts 11, 18 out loud. You'll actually find yourself telling the story of Peter's vision and Cornelius's vision like three different times. There's this back and forth between scenes in Cornelius and Peter. Each time they're recounting the details of their dreams and their visions. And somewhere along the way, Peter associates his vision with the thought that maybe God is not as picky about the believers as the believers believe. But that doesn't sit well with the apostles and they get bent out of shape because the Gentiles have received this gift of the Holy Spirit. But then Peter tells them again about the vision and what happened at Cornelius's house. And that's when he finally gets to the punchline. So if God gave the Gentiles the same gift that God gave us, who am I to stand in God's way? So I baptized them. And then the apostles are like, ah, oh, okay, Gentiles are in, cool. It makes me wonder what Peter and the apostles thought of all of, of Jesus's inclusive activity when they experienced, that they'd been experiencing for the prior three years or so. Why was this the moment of great realization? What about all that stuff Jesus said about inviting poor people and sinners to the banquet? What were they thinking he meant when he said, people will come from east and west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of heaven? What do you suppose they thought make disciples of all nations could have been about if God wasn't for the other nations? How would that even work? Why this, Peter? Why would a dream of a tablecloth full of lobster be the thing that finally tips you off? But here in the middle of this story, Peter stumbles across this gem of a Bible quote. If you're going to memorize part of the Bible, go for this one, Acts 10.34. Now I truly understand that God shows no partiality. What if we ask ourselves at what point in history did we make the greatest stride toward truly recognizing all of humanity as equal before God? Throughout history, we've had moments of great clarity that have been born out of moments of great strife, pain, and tragedy. Choose your favorite human rights movement. You can look back five years or 500. Just the last hundred years has seen great leaps forward in the rights of people who have been marginalized and kept out of power just in our own country. Think of the strides for women in the workplace, refugees, non-English speakers, black voters, Americans with disabilities, children. In my life, I look back and I see a multitude of moments that have expressed a new layer of understanding of human rights and human equity. There's two things that I kind of remember that go hand in hand. I remember people being denied the right to visit their spouses in the hospitals because the state didn't recognize their marriage as legal. 
But the Supreme Court made a ruling on that and it got better. It's, it's not 100% there and everything's not just fine, but it is definitely better than I remember it being. And there were also, I remember that friends uh, graduated, graduated alongside me at seminary and then they were denied ordination because my denomination took a wishy-washy stand on what constituted sexual morality. But then the denominational leaders took a stand and slowly that changed. It's better now. It's not perfect, but it is better. One of those two things happened in 2004 and the other over 10 years later in 2015, in the grand scheme of history, not very far apart. But one of them was the movement of people based upon religious and spiritual beliefs, a conver conversion of spirit, if you will. And the other was a legal decision based on reason and lobbies and money and political authority and a passion for justice. The part that gives me hope is that the church one preceded the state one. Sometimes the way we act within the context of our faith can shape the society we live in. In fact, I dare say when things are working well, that's exactly what faith does. We know we're not 100% there. But things get better. They like actually move along the line and they get better. But they just seem to keep not getting all the way there, am I right? Just this last week, our heart was torn by the news of the death of Ahmed Arbery. Racial injustice being enacted by our justice system in our state. Every day, we're made aware of how not there yet we are and how our, now our lives have been further insulated from opportunities to interact with people who are different from ourselves. Our kids aren't interacting with authority figures other than their parents in a lot of places. Our opportunities to reach out and meet people are extremely limited. Even our ability to assemble in our anger is dangerous to our health. This is gonna be a rough time in human history to move forward on social interaction, given that social interaction is forbidden. I think there's good news and bad news in realizing that not much has changed in 2000 years of church history. I guess it's good news that it's human nature to both fear the unknown and familiar, but also that our curiosity and our moral compasses move us forward in understanding and interacting with other people. But the bad news is that there's really no end in sight. It's good news that we've been constantly reprogramming ourselves to open up to the other, but there's always another layer, a deeper layer that we didn't even know that we weren't seeing. So I guess ultimately the good news is there are always be something for us to work on. The really good news is that it starts here. It starts again and again and again. It starts in prayer and in deliberate interaction. And it starts now as we begin to look around our homes and we miss each other. We miss seeing people who are different from us. We long for people that we haven't even met yet. The current state of life globally 
think about that in history. This is something we're all experiencing globally. It's a crisis of non-interaction, a crisis of homogeneity, and we're feeling it. We get to name it and we get to frame it and pick it up and run with it. People of faith have always been in the business of understanding and, and pointing out differences. At our worst, we look at those differences and we decide that our differences make us better. They make us in God's favor and them not. In our worst, we look for ways to make the things that make us unique children of God to be a birthright of power or authorization. But at our best, at our very best, we realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. These words of Peter ring across 2,000 years of history, and they echo like a singing bowl through the past and into the future. How true it is that God does not show favoritism. Where will we take that? How will we let it shape where we go with this great crisis of homogeneity? What will this moment in history look like in how it moved people of faith to respond? How is this our aha? In the current isolation, can we name how desperately we need people who are different from us, not to have power over, not to comfort our insecurities? How badly we need others in order to more fully be the people that God created us to be. How can we realize how true that is?